into prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many signs and wonders were performed through the apostles. Now all believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to the number those who were being saved. So what, it, what do we want Crosswinds to be? Ultimately, we want it to be a reflection as best as we can of, of the churches that are, that are, that are demonstrated, the, the record, the biblical record we have in Scripture. How did the church function? We want to look like that. Now, obviously, we exist in a culture, and when, when cultures change, we, we sometimes have to keep principles, but we don't apply uh, things directly or, or in exactly the same way yet we seem to see a behavior that Scripture commends for us here in the book of Acts. And though this is a uh, historical narrative recording, it does make sense that we would look at, at a church that, that God saw fit in his inspiration to record, look at the behaviors of that church and say, what was it about that church that made it, made it function well, that made it, um, made it a church that God was, was pleased with, which is, which is the point uh, that's being given here. And so... When we look at, look at this, these behaviors, we notice in here a lot of behaviors and a lot of things that, that coincide with, with our terminology, which is functioning like a family. So we'll just kind of dive into the passage and talk that through as we go. So what is the first thing that they, they did? They devoted themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching. Verse 1, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We talked about this last week, actually, right? When we said the point of crosswinds is to be gospel-centered. What was the teaching of, of the apostles regularly? It was the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. It was the gospel of, of, of Jesus, whom they'd just seen crucified before them, who had been as, as, resurrected and ascended in heaven. They were devoted to something. They had a common, uh, a common reason uh, for, for their, their fellowship. Uh, they, they devoted themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching. We might say, as we're talking about here, they had common values. And so, Crosswinds, we're talking about what our family values are over the next six weeks. This is a, this is a description of, of the values of the congregation. And it's like what we're talking about with family values. In a family, in, in any family, you have family values. Usually, they, those family values do not... Uh, do not elevate to the, to the level of, of, of Scripture. Uh, but hopefully, even in your own home, they are, they are, um, they are derived from, from Scripture. So in, in your home, you might value things like sitting down and, and, and praying together. You might value things like regularly uh, doing family devotions together. You hopefully are teaching your children regularly that your family values the person of, of of Jesus Christ. And so those are spiritual, but even, even beyond that, you have, you have values that are both explicit and implicit in, in your family, uh, and you have ways that, that you function. And one of the fun things uh, uh, a lot of times in ministry is to watch two families come together, so to perform a marriage for two different people and watch the values from two different families have to be kind of molded together and worked through and discovered uh, what they are. And usually that's fun. Sometimes it's difficult because really people come from two different places. They come from two different homes. They both typically believe that whatever were the overriding values of their family are the right values. I sometimes tease family, uh, tease couples in premarital counseling. I said, 
And I tell them, until you're ready to admit that your family is weird, you're probably not ready to get married. And they say, what, what, is that, what does that mean? And what I usually mean by that is kind of all families are, are weird. And we need to get to that place where we go, we did something our way, and that's the way we did it, but that's just the, the way it was. And so that doesn't really relate to the, this sermon. That's just free premarital uh, counseling advice. But my point here is simply this, is that you have families come together and they have values in there. They can be explicit, they can be implicit, but, but they exist. And so uh, we value certain things in our family. Sometimes we have a little bit of debate because of personality, uh, the, way, uh, the way my personality is and the way I value things and the way, uh, the way others in my family can value things. They can be sometimes different, but one of the things I think that we value largely that's huge for us, it's time spent together. It's time doing, uh, doing things t- together. We used to have this, this problem because in the, my family of, of, of origin, if we say it like that, the family I was in before I, I was married, uh, before Liv and I got married, our, our family would do things like go and cut down a, a Christmas tree regularly. We have a Christmas tree ritual. It, it goes deep in, into values. Obviously, I just said again, the, the values of my family, implicit and explicit, are, are just ours. They're not right or wrong, but it sure does seem right or wrong to me every Christmas season. You know this if you have a plastic tree in your house. Uh, and I'm like, uh, why, why do you hate Christmas? I just, I don't even understand. It's like, what did Christmas ever do to you with your fake tree? And, but it's not enough or it's not just the real tree. There's been very few times in our whole married life in which the tree that we had, we did not cut down. And the reason we didn't cut it down, uh, there was always a specific reason. One of the times I remember specifically is, is that, um, uh, that Lib was, was pregnant and didn't feel like going out and walking around and cutting down a Christmas tree. But we had a history. Even before children were born, Libby and I were going to the farm to cut down the tree. We had a specific farm that, that we would go to. There were specific things that we did. We would do things regularly. But I remember one of the times we went, I idealized things. It's just my, my personality. I'm, a, I'm an idealist. And so I had picked out Christmas music. I had made, uh, I had made a hot chocolate. I had the whole thing worked out. And Libby said, don't you think this is just something wasn't going right? I was frustrated. She said, don't you think this is a bit much? I'm like, no, this is how you do Christmas, right? It's an implicit value that, that, that I had learned. I'll, I'll give you one more uh, just, just for free to, to make the point. Um, I come from, from a family that, that uses food to show love. What I realized by reading some of the people who write on, on the topic of, of poverty is that my mother, who had grown up in, in very deep, extreme poverty, had, had developed some of the habits that people in poverty have. And actually, it's interesting because I would say none of the negative ones, but some of the, some of the positive ones, in, in my opinion, one of those is, is people in poverty tend to use food to show love. And so every day in, in my, my life, I had an understanding that my father was deeply loved because my mom always had, had started early in the afternoon to make food for him and prepare it and put in time and use Use, uh, use her hands uh, to do it, and it was always on the table, and she thought ahead uh, about this and, and put in significant time. I knew that I was loved because my mom... Um my mom put in that time to cook for us. The only time I ever felt unloved was when my mother cooked chop suey or decided to experiment with something that at the time was new called stir fry. Thankfully, I'm the youngest of five. I had a good sister who would take me to McDonald's when my mom made that. 
right? But typically, I knew that we were loved by my mom's preparation and the, and the energy and the time that she put into it. It's a very clear, I- implicit Drake value to understand that food and love are very, very connected. And so if you go to a, a Drake siblings party, you bring your A game. This is what it's developed into. It's not a competition, but it is. Uh, you, you bring your A game and whatever food you put out, you, put, you do your best. And so you work ahead, you work hard, you think, and there's always way more food than you need, which is another uh, implicit Drake value. But I bring this up to say that I remember early in our marriage, I remember Libby's family, different family uh, than, my, than my own um, uh, her mom saying to Libby, you should try this meal. It didn't cost anything, and it only took two seconds to make. Now, those numbers might be slightly off, but those seem right at, at the moment. It, and so she said, you should try this meal. It didn't take any time to make, and it didn't cost me anything. And so from the values I had learned, I was like, what is this? What kind of, what? I actually said to Libby, I said, I don't get it. Why does your mom hate people? What's, what's with that? What I discovered over the years is it's not about that, is that we have a family value that was strong. It was, it was, it was uh, implicit in who we were, and we had a, a value, and I had normalized that value. I'd made that value out to be the, the value. And what I've realized over time is Libby's mom indeed does love, uh, love people. Uh, she comes a little bit more from a stronger uh, and different Eurocentric portion of, of the world uh, than, than, than my family, which is mutt and doesn't know where they're from. from. They, we have different things, different cultures. That's, that's all I'm saying. And so here, going back to the passage, is, is this idea that in families... In families, we have values. There's things that matter to us. There's things that are important to us, and they're both explicit and, and implicit, and that's, that's what we're trying to deal with this morning. But one of the explicit values of, of the people uh, of Jesus, is not even implicit, was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was what made them the family that they were. If they devoted themselves to anything else, they're not the family of, family of God. They're not the people of God. They're something else. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We talked about that last week when we talked about being gospel-centered. But then they devoted themselves to the fellowship. There's a the there for a specific, a specific reason. And we need to talk about this idea, especially in our current culture. Our current culture wants to say sometimes, well, I am going to be Christian, but I do not need the church to do it. Or I don't need church. I can be, I can be Christian at home. Number one, number one on this is that that if we read any of Scripture, we know that this idea is completely foreign to any of Scripture. People will say to me sometimes, I don't see any passage that ever tells me that I have to go to church. We'll talk about that in half a second, okay? That's inaccurate. But even if we, even if we ignored that, we know this is that Paul, when Paul writes, except for a few times when he writes to Timothy and Titus, he's always writing to churches. He's always writing about what churches should do. He's writing to local established congregations that spend time together. That's the New Testament is made up fully of it. The reason we don't get such direct commands like that is because they weren't needed. It's inconceivable or unfathomable to the writers of Scripture that they would ever write, you need to go to, to church regularly and explicitly. It's assumed that, that they would go. The, the, the idea, as I've talked about uh, before, the idea of, of salvation is this. Jesus not only died for you individually, right? We had, in America have an individualistic focus. We talk a lot about personal salvation. I believe in those things. God saved you. He saved you 
you from sin, but he also saved you to something. And one of the things he saved you to was right standing in relationship with him and to his people. The point of salvation is to make you into a people, to make you into church. And to say, I'm a Christian without the church is to deny the blessings of salvation. You are saved into the blessing of, of, of the church, into the blessing of God's people. And I said earlier this week, it's similar to saying that you're a lottery winner without collecting the money. I, I won the lottery, celebrate your lottery win, but to never collect the money is to be a Christian who says, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't need the church. Your salvation gives you the church. The church is, 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 is at the heart of what Jesus is trying to do. It is his people. You are saved to it. It is the reward of your salvation. And to be, claim to be a Christian apart from the reward of salvation is like claiming to be a lottery winner apart from the reward of the money. It is the point of that win, the point uh, 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 the, the, the reward of salvation. Part of that is to be the, the church. Now, going back to this verse then, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. There is a the there in English. There is a the there in the original language. There is a reason because it is a specific thing. It is not, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Uh, in other words, some would say, well, I spend time with Christians and I do these sorts of things. I do No, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. It is an entity. It is, it is something that, that exists. It is something specific. The believers were getting together to meet regularly and they devoted themselves to that. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. It is... There is a reason I say regularly that you do not do baptism at home alone in your bathtub. There is a reason that you do not take communion by yourself on a Friday night. It is made, it, we are a communal people. We are made for one another. We are made for fellow, fellowship. So they devoted themselves to that. This is another value of, their, of, the, of the fledgling congregation, of the fledgling church in Acts. They devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. That gives them grounding. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread and to prayer. So they devoted themselves to the breaking of, of, of bread. We just talked about this. This is very Drake of them. I appreciate the early church in, in, in this sense. They got together and they ate. In, in uh in the first century when these people are coming to Jesus, remember that the majority of the believers, this happens right on the heels of Pentecost, which is an expansion of the church into the world, yes, but the majority of people who are going to follow Jesus at this time are from Jewish backgrounds. The table in Jewish backgrounds, the table from, from, from the beginning of time, the table in the Hebrew understanding is always sacred. It's always viewed with... Um, with, with spiritual significance so that when, when Luke writes here of what they were doing, that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, he would understand that the, there was this meal and this kind of thing what was sacred or, or important to them. And I emphasize that simply to, to say, say this, is that there was an understanding that time spent together around the, the table mattered in a deeply spiritual, spiritual way. So I hope... What's going on in your homes, I hope as you are raising your children, I hope as you are, are entering into relationships or you're in a marriage relationship, I hope that there are times where you sit down around the table and you talk about, 
about things, and you, you talk about what, is, uh, what, is, what has gone on in your, on your day, what's gone on in your children's life. The table can be very, very important in the, in the fabric even of American cultural life. I know in our family's, our family's life, there are times where we regularly, there are times where we regularly eat out a lot, and, and sometimes we enjoy that because we're just busy. But then there's moments where even the kids will look at us and say, man, we just haven't had a meal at home where we sat down together in a long time. And we'll realize that. And so one of the things that, that when we're not in a busy period that we enjoy is we kind of have a menu picked out for the week and, and different ones of us will, will prepare it. There was a while last year where Haley and I would regularly together prepare every Tuesday uh, chicken and, and gravy. Uh, and, and that was one of the, the amazing things that we did. But that table became then a place where we could spend time together to talk. We could ask about what was going on in one another's lives. We could find out what had gone on at school. And it became a bonding place for us. In fact, more than anything in our, in our day-to-day life, that was the place where all of us would get together. All of us would sit together and we'd find out what was going on in one another's life. And I found in my children's life that if, when they don't have that, that they begin to long for it, that their desire for, for it, it becomes very, very strong. The reason why for us is that, that that's bonding. It's the same thing here, I think. There's an understanding that when the, when, the, when the people of God got together and they sat down at the table and they spoke into one another's life and they heard from each other, it bonded them together so that they became stronger as, as the people of God. And so I hope, and I, I said this wasn't about home family values, but I, this is just, again, another freebie. I hope that that's happening in, in your home life, especially as America becomes more disjointed, especially as America becomes more and more about what's happening on social media. We have generations of people who don't know how to interact face-to-face. They only know how to interact online. They don't know how to speak to a person face-to-face. They don't know any of this. Their whole life has become on life. That can be disconnecting and it can be destructive. And so I hope you have in your, your family life a time where you sit together and you talk together and, and, and you, you, you eat together and enjoy one another's company. That's what the apostles were, were doing regularly as a congregation. Now, so you know at Crosswinds then that this is one of our major, major, major values, right? And some of this, again, comes from the fact that I, as the lead planter of Crosswinds, lead pastor of Crosswinds, coming from a Drake background, associate food with, with love. So we have food kind of at everything. But it's not just that. There's a reason we regularly gather around round tables, because it's what the apostles did. That's the kind of fellowship that they had. Because I've noticed that when you share that together, that sharing becomes, becomes deeper, and it disarms some some of the, the other things. A shared meal in most cultures says something significant. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to continue to, to share meals together. This is why we have open tables. And we invite people to come in and, and sit down. It is in our culture, by the way, uh, radically, radically countercultural to invite someone you don't know into your own your own table. And that's the reason we emphasize this idea of open tables. Invite your neighbors. We've been realizing this last week, even as we talked about it, that open tables probably even a second step. The people you know, your neighbors might never come to an open table that we do here until your table has been open to them in your neighborhood, until you've sat down with them, until you've shared with them, until you've 
you've loved on them. At any rate, they were sharing the, the table together. All of these things, what I'm trying to emphasize is that the early church seems to be functioning a lot like a nuclear or a traditional family might, might function in, in all cultures. They spent lots of time together. They were organized around the same values. In, in this, since you have your family values, they were organized around it. They, they spent time together. They ate together. And then the last one says, and they devoted themselves to prayer. They, they prayed together. The family that does not have regular prayer together in, in, in the home is going to struggle to communicate the values of, of, of the kingdom and is going to con- struggle to, to replicate the values of the kingdom into its into its children. And it is difficult in any time. It's the parents' greatest worry, right? That they would that they would be Jesus followers, but their children would decide to rebel against that. Well even in in our family homes, one of the bigger biggest markers of that is that do I take time and do I pray to God and do I talk to him? Why? Because it is one thing to say to your children that you value Jesus. It's another thing to act like that's true. And one of the things prayer says to your children is I don't have it all figured out. I don't know everything. I'm not in charge of everything. I'm not in control of everything. I can't do it. But there is one who can. And so prayer reinforces that. Not only that, but even in, in your home life when you, when you pray and you see God act, your children get to experience and see the power of God acting in, in their life. It's powerful and it's transformative, right? But secondly, if we can stretch the family metaphor uh, beyond that, we would say this, is that if God is the father of the family that is the church, if God is the father of the family that is the church, then we need to talk to him and hear from him. We need to act in a way in which God, as the father of the family that is the church, and the father is not absentee, but rather he is active, he is there, he's with us, he speaks to us, he, he, uh, he hears from us. He cares about what goes on in our, our daily life. He is interactive with us. If God is the Father, then he must be communicated with. And so they prayed. Why did they pray? They prayed to talk to the, to the Father, to talk to the dad. I know a lot of times that, that, that especially with my, uh, with my younger Uh, My younger boys, it is a very, very, very big deal to talk to dad. What's dad doing? Honestly, with, with one of my, my children, there's, there's been a, a, a huge struggle with some, some anxiety and some, some different stuff. But one of the markers of, of that, that anxiety, one of the markers of that has been his, his need to always know where I am at any given minute. Where's dad? What's dad doing now? Where'd dad go? I get this because I was that, that child and I was worse. In fact, my mom would tell you that I had so much anxiety about where she was. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I'm the youngest of five, so there'd be days before I started school, everybody would be in school. So we spent a lot of time, just the two of us. My mom would tell you that if she went anyplace, I would become very fearful and very worrisome about where she is. So bad that she would tell you that she could not go to the bathroom in peace because even though we lived in a small house, relatively small house, I would guess that our house growing up was about 800 square feet. I'm the youngest of five. There was a lot of us in that in that house, my mom would tell you that she would go into the bathroom and immediately after that I would begin to knock on the door. Are you still there? Are you still there? And my worry was so great that she might not be there. My mother pointed out later on, and, and uh, when you think of her, her struggles with, um, 
with having a disease that made it hard for her to move the lower half of her, of her body for years and years. My mom pointed out, where exactly would have I gone? You saw me walk into the bathroom. You know I did not climb into the bathtub somehow propped myself up and dropped myself out a window that would have been about a 9, 10-foot drop, where would have I gone, right? But I was always, I was worried that she wasn't there, and I've noticed this in, in, in my children, but we have a desire to know where our parents are. We have a desire to, 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 to are, you, are you still there? And sometimes in our spiritual life, I think this, this can be true too. Especially, God does not wander from us. God does not go away. But in our wandering times and our own spiritual rebounds, we start to wonder, is God there? Are, are you there? Are you there? Are you there? The congregation prayed. The reason the congregation prayed is that they needed to talk to the Father. It was the daily reminder that the, God of the, that the Father of the family sat down at the table in fellowship and he ate with them. At the heart of Christianity is this idea and this metaphor stretched out and told that at the end of all time, what's the end of all things when Jesus returns? The marriage supper of the Lamb. What happens at that marriage supper is we sit down with Jesus in victory but with, but with, with, with the, the very presence of God in his promise and we share together a great meal we eat together right the idea in in Isaiah talking about the end in Isaiah it's one of my favorite verses I quote it all the time when I'm talking to vegans especially uh I find Christians sometimes they're like I've gone vegan I'm like really I haven't because Isaiah 25 says this that at the end of time when Jesus comes and, and all things are made new and, and the church is in glory what will it be like it says that the church will get together and will have the finest wines not a big deal to me. Don't care about that so much. It says we'll have the other, other things to eat. It's fine. But this is the one that God says, in the end times, we will have full fatted meat from the bone. I'm like, wow. The finest meats. Like, do you know what it does? Like, like whoever, I was saved when I was, when I was four. But if I hadn't been, somebody should have used that verse apologetically with me. Listen, Dave Drake, you need Jesus. Why? <laughs> Isaiah 25. Because Jesus is going to give you full fat and meat. That's ribeye, guys, right? Not boneless, skinless, uh, not, not, not tofurky, uh, not tofu, whatever, like full fat and meat. And so my, my point about, uh, about this simply is, is that there is coming a time when the metaphor becomes that literally the church of Jesus Christ will, will, will be together and it will be with the Father and it will be with Jesus, our brother, whom, whom, we, whom we are co-heirs with and we will eat together and when we eat together, there will be celebration with the finest of wines. One of the translations says there'll be all kinds of amazing desserts. That's good, but it, we're gonna have full fat of meat and the idea is just this. We're going to get together and we're going to eat and we're going to be in the very presence of God. It's powerful because that's, that's the family reunion. The family is going to be all together and it's going to be all in one place and the celebration is going to be inconceivable and amazing. That's scripture. And if that is scripture for the future, the job of the church is to live out the reality of God's coming kingdom in the now as we expect the what is coming. It's now we live out this because we know that one day the fullness of it will come. The church needs to be regularly in prayer the church needs to regularly come together at the table. The church does these things because in those places, the presence of the Father is, 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 is there. The Father's presence meets with us. He meets us at the table, and he especially meets us in prayer. Uh, so we're still in verse 42. So verse 43 says this. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs are being performed through the apostles. In other words, when the, when the body of Christ got together and they lived out, they were living in close community. They were living like a family. God worked and he worked actively. 
It's always fun to come to these verses as someone myself from a Baptist background with a very strong uh, uh, Reformed leading in my theology. When I come to this, everyone's filled with awe and many signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. That is not typically normative to my theological thinking. It is not typically normative to the way it seems, but I will confess this, that I believe that the God of Scripture continues to work in ways that are transformative, continues to work in ways that are amazing. He continues to work in ways that cause awe. I believe that Jesus continues to go ahead of the doctor's hands in every hospital, but I believe sometimes he just chooses chooses to heal. I believe that he does great things. The greatest of these things and the greatest of all miracles, though, is summed up in who he is and who Jesus is and what he has done in the transformation of the hearts of people and calling them home to himself. Uh, verse 44, now all the believers were together and they held all things in common. This is an interesting one. We get into a group of verses uh, that, that, especially in our own time, seems to be talking about, or some people use it to defend uh, one political style over another political style. I don't think that it's talking about that at all. In fact, I know this, that the believers were often outside of the political reality. They were outside. The uh, persecution is coming for them and will continue to come for them. The idea that the believers typically could be active participants in, in any sort of political system of their day is frankly wrong. They were under persecution uh, very early, early on. The emperors didn't like the Christians. They thought that, that Jesus was stealing worship from them. Uh, uh, they didn't like him. And so this is not talking about a political thing, but it's talking about this reality is that the believers, because persecution is, is happening regularly, because persecution is going to come, because a lot of times they were shot out even out of the, 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 the um, economic system of the day, that believers... Uh, the believers had a heart and a disposition that was 100% for others, and they were for the other people. They took care of each other. Uh, the term held all things in common seems to be a Hellenistic saying. Uh, it seems to come from Hellenism, was, 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 a, was, a, was part of the, the Greek culture, and, the, and the, the Greeks had a saying that, that friends held all things in common. And what it essentially meant was this, is that a friend would not withhold anything from you if you were in need. And that's what this verse seems to be saying Luke, being a Hellenist, writing to a Hellenistic audience, when he says all things in common, it's likely that they're going to interpret it in the, in the same way. Uh, they sold their possessions and gave property and distributed proceeds to all as any had need. Uh, this is not probably everybody selling everything that they have at once and putting it into a communal pot. We know this by the logic of the passage because it says, later, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and they broke bread from house to house. If they had all sold their houses, if they had all sold their property, they could not do that. And so the idea here is simply this, is that when they saw a friend in need, they would take care of them, they would love on them, they would do whatever need. This is another family value thing, right? I would hope that in your family of origin, that in your biological family, that you would not see your mother, your father, your brothers and sisters in need and go, well, I have plenty, but I don't really feel like helping them. I don't really feel like loving on, on them. I would hope that that would never be who, who you are. Uh, I, and I would hope that, 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 that the tenor or, or the... Um, the culture of our congregation would be the same, that you would view yourselves literally as, as brothers and sisters, that your relationship in Jesus Christ, that your relationship formed by the blood of Jesus Christ would just be, uh, would be as powerful to you as your relationships formed by the, the blood of your biological parents, and you would view the people in your congregation as brothers and sisters so that when you saw them in need, rather than going, well, I could help, 
but I've got this and I want to save it, you would go, I'm going to help. I'm going to give to them. I'm going to care. I'm going to pour myself out on them. I will say this to you that historically we have been excellent at this. In fact, if, we, if, we, if there's a value that Crosswinds lives out very well, it happens to be this one, that we function like a family, right? We spend time together. We love spending time together. We eat together. We care for one another. I've never felt uncared for in any situation. When something happens, the congregation is there for me, the congregation has been there for us. This is especially um, true in, in times of struggle, and I think that we all find that to be true. And we know that this congregation, not made up predominantly of wealthy people, that it has been at times sacrifices uh, for all of us to care for others. And so I think we actually live this out very well. Uh, they sold their possessions, distributed proceeds to any and all as they need. Every day they t- devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. So it's just an explication of what, what we just said, but I just want to emphasize again that every day they devoted themselves to meeting. The American church very much reduced uh, the idea of being a good Christian to this, at least in my cultural context, my cultural background. If you want to be a very good Christian, you went to church in the morning, then you went home and you took a nap, and then you went back to church in the evening, right? And then, and then that's, that's what you, that's, like, if you're a super basic Christian, like, we're praying for you to get more saved, you just showed up in Sunday morning growing up. But if you're kind of like, okay, they're an okay Christian, you went Sunday morning and Sunday evening. The true, the true Christians, right, the true followers went Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday nights if you're Baptist, right? Other congregations might have a different night. Uh, I was talking to someone where, where even now their congregation seems to do Thursday nights, but Baptists are Wednesday night people. And if you want to be a really, really good Baptist, you go Sunday morning, you go Sunday evening, and you go Wednesday. I come from a family that did that. I'm very, very thankful for that. The only time I can remember, remember not going on Sunday evenings, I can remember two cases. Uh, one is that the, the Lions... Uh, Nope, sorry, that's second. Uh, the first one was when they do cantatas. I don't know if you know about the cantata, but, but here, even if you're functioning like a family, some things your family do is annoying. The most annoying thing they do in the traditional church is called a cantata. A cantata is a very fancy name for what seems to be some sort of spiritual opera. And so, so some of you are like, hey, I am down for a cantata. I will say to the, this to you now, thanks be to Jesus, my father was not one of those, right? And so the only time I ever remember us choosing to not go, I'm sure there were others, but the only time I remember was like, oh, they're doing the cantata. Uh, Googled that. I don't even really know what that word means. I know what it is, though. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's the women of the church and, and a couple dudes uh, <laughs> doing some sort of musical number sort of thing. Uh, and not like Hamilton or Wicked, like, like not, not enjoyable. Like, um, so we didn't go then, and the only other time I remember was when the Lions made the playoffs after years and years and years and years thing. And um, even then, to get out of that Sunday evening, you probably have to sin by pretending to be sick. Um, I'm not saying it did happen. I'm just saying Eric Kramer threw for 300-some yards that night. Um, so we were... We were that family. We spent lots and lots of time. So, but, but very much it was defined by we go this time, we go that time, we go Wednesday. And the idea of it was you went to a place and you did a thing. What did we do? Well, we went to the Sunday morning service, which is also very, very defined. We went to Sunday school before, oh, I forgot. That makes us even more spiritual. Man, we were on top of that stuff, right? 
Listen, I say to people all the time, so if life were based upon like certain things, like standardized testing, I would be so much more effective in life than I am. And another one of those is if life were based upon how well we did the Baptist stuff, man, would I be super spiritually effective, but unfortunately it's not. But we went to Sunday school, right? We went to Sunday school. Then between Sunday school, there's a little social time, and then you know that the service is about to start because they have, they have the, the um, man, there's a name for that. What's that one called? What's the one before the service time? No, 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 the music. The piano, the piano plays a processional. The piano plays, plays an introductory thing. And then they turn the music up a little so you know to sit down. Then you sit down. Then they do the announcements. Then they do the four songs. Then they do the offertory. Then after the offertory, they do the speaking. Then after that, they, they, do, the, um, they do the altar call and the last song. Every week, these things happened every week, and they actually have names for all of those. Prelude, yeah, see? Tom also comes from it. But Tom, Tom, Tom came to it late in life. He was saved into it. I was born into that. I got years of, of that, right? right? So my, my point simply was this, is that there were all these things, and all congregations are going to have, have those things. But what I've realized over the years is that, that some of those things, while they weren't bad and they weren't the problem, they became the only things that we did, right? right? So we went to church we went to Sunday school, then we went to Sunday morning, then we went home, then we went to Sunday evening, then we went back on Wednesday, but that's all we did, and that was really the only time we saw those people. Occasionally, you would have those people over as guests into your home, but it was very much organized in our tradition around the idea that you go to these things, and you are, you are not typically an active participant in them, but you watch them, them happen, and then there's other ways in which you can serve. You might uh, be an usher. You might do these sorts of things. You might... Uh, you might teach Sunday school, but it became, and I, I have very positive views towards everything uh, I just talked about in my background, actually, but, but if it never goes beyond that, it's not really becoming what this New Testament church was. It's just attending a thing. We had this conversation, I had this conversation because sometimes uh, in the summer we go up to, we go up to a family member's cottage uh, and, and it's away. And typically what we do is we drive back, back to church because we want to be with you because you're our family. And someone was asking, you know, we went on vacation and they said, did you go to church? And I got into an interesting discussion because in my opinion, what you really go to is if you're on vacation, you go to a service, but it's not the same as going to church because in my mind, the church is the body of believers and the people you fellowship with and the people you know. It's a family. You can go to a service and it can be valuable, but it's not, it's not the same thing. And so all of this, all of that, that sorry, simply to say this, that there is something deeper than just attending services a few times a week, going to a thing, checking the boxes and becoming really good at become, being whatever your tradition is. You need to and I need to matter in your life and we need to matter in each other's lives more than the person that I would see at, at the big top or in our family's case, they put a dollar store at the end of our street. And you, I see the lady at the Dollar General a lot. My kids see the lady at the Dollar General a lot. I need my kids to see you more 
more, and I need you to be in their lives more than the people at Dollar General, right? Because the Dollar General can sell them Takis, but you can literally live Jesus and love Jesus in front of them. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that we're need, we need to be a, a, a family. It's not just about, about those things. And so they, they spent time together meeting from house to house. I hope that you're in each other's houses. I hope that you're, that you're loving one another. I hope you're spending time together. I hope you're influencing one another. I hope that when they, people say family, you think of each other. Because when people say to me family, certainly I think of my biological family. But I think of this congregation as much as anything. You are my family. You have loved me. You've walked with me. You've cared for me. You've been there at every moment. There's times when I won't see you for a while. But when I do see you after that time of disconnection, we reconnect like we are literally blood. You are family to me. And I hope that I am family to you. And I hope that the church functions like that because I do believe this, that in a time and in a culture, well, let's, let's put a pause on that and I'll, I'll tell you from scripture what I believe. So they broke bread together from house to house. They ate food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God for all, everything and enjoying the favor of the people, right? The church then, in the way that it acted, even though from a governmental perspective, the church would, the church would be, be largely uh, covert or, or it would be persecuted from a government uh, perspective. Uh, not as much right here, but it's going to continue. Persecution is going to come in every corner of, of the church. One of the interesting things that happened, even though the governments don't like them, the people did. And we see this even now in persecuted churches around the world. It, when in China, at the height of its persecution, at the height of its persecution, when, when leaders of house churches were being killed for leading house churches, the government didn't like them, but the people were fighting to become amongst them. The, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ exploded in China. I remember the number, I quote to you all the time, but I still love the number. 1,200 people every half hour were coming to Jesus in China at, at, at the height of the persecution, and at the height of the house church movement. Why? Because of how the people acted and how the people, people behaved. And so the people had the, had the favor, the church had the favor of the people. Sometimes I hear people say, well, they're, they're never going to like our message, so they're not going to like the church. You're right, they're not going to like our message. But I don't see anything that says to me in Scripture, especially in Acts, which is the story of actual churches, that the people typically hated the church. Even in, in 1 Peter, which is, a, which is a, 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 a writing on how the church should act in a place where, where they're persecuted, Peter says, inasmuch depends on you, do your best to live at peace with everybody. And then he goes on to say that people will see how they lived amongst them and they will want to know the God that they know. He tells them how to live as what he calls elect exiles in, in, in a culture. And so it is true that our message is, is confrontational to the behavior of the culture. But the result of our message, salvation through Jesus Christ is the desire of all the people on the planet, even though they don't need, know it, even though they're deceived by it. In other words, they may, they may not actively know, that, the, but it is their need. It is what their only hope. And so even though, even though they, they don't seek Christ, and even though if he doesn't call, they'll never, they'll never come after him, even though they're enemies of Jesus... What the church has is what every person needs. And when the church behaves like the church, when the church loves like the church, when the church fellowships together like the church, when the church cares for one another like the church, when the church acts like a great family is supposed to act, people outside see that and we enjoy favor amongst them. Those people, man, I don't know if I believe the same stuff they do, but those people care for each other. We see this, see this all the time. When people... 
who are not parts of, of, of church, not parts of church go through, through issues in their family and they have no one to come with them when they have to go to the hospital. We see this when people have issues and then when their child gets sick and they have no one to organize their meals. They have no one to help clean their house. They have no one to stand by them, walk by them, and be with them. I see it all the time. And I also see this, is that people are always amazed when people in our congregation go through anything. They are always amazed, even from the outside, in the way that our congregation cares for one another, the way our congregation loves one another, the way our congregation reaches out, the way our congregation lifts up. They're always amazed by that, even from the outside. I have these actual conversations. They're amazed by it. Why? Because you function like a family. And most people are honestly living as orphans when they uh, out there. And they see what's going on. Enjoying the favor of the people. And then I want you to catch this. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. One of the best apologetics, and apologetic is just a fancy word for defense of the faith, and I'm using it to mean one of the best ways we can show that the truth of the gospel is true for the church to function like the family of God, to love on one another, to care for each other, to eat together, to truly have, have a connection with one another that demonstrates that God is our Father. When we do that, God's going to use that to add to our number. There's a reason we have open tables. There's a reason we invite people into fellowship. There's a reason we, we, we care for them. There's a reason that we're trying <coughs> always trying to live this out. Because when we do these sorts of things, people who are largely orphaned in this world and without a father, or more, more explicitly with an abusive father, the devil, they're going to want what we have. And God's going to use that to add to our number. It is a sad thing that we live in a culture. We live in a culture where God offers his son, where God offers forgiveness, where God offers to be a loving father, when God offers a loving family, when God offers it. And a lot of times people go, no, I want to go back to my abusive father. I want to go back to, my, to, my, to, 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 to the abuse. I want to go back to that family. And I see that happen. But the only apologetic I know to overcome that is to demonstrate again and again and again that the body of Jesus Christ, when it functions like a family, is such a beautiful thing that people want to be a part of what we have. That the good news of Jesus becomes desirable in the context of the result of the good news, right? The church is the apologetic. The church is what proves, yes, Jesus has saved you, and that's, that's beautiful, but it's about more than your personal salvation. You're saved to a people and to a family. And when people see the family functioning like a family, loving on each other, caring for each other, being loyal to each other, fighting for each other, when they see that, people aren't getting that. And God uses that to make it clear that the way of Jesus, that's the way. And he uses it to draw people to himself. And so Crosswind's big value is we function like a family. You know this in, in practice and you do this well. This is just a, a slight reminder. We have, our, we have our own culture here, right? Like I was talking about Drake culture, Smith culture, Libby's maiden name. There's not a right and wrong in that. And so some of the things we do at Crosswind's are right and wrong. And some are just our culture and it's okay, right? But we're a family, right? I have no doubt that if something awful happens to me this afternoon, you will all be there for me. And anyone in this congregation who's ever walked through any struggle knows that to be true as well, that we're there and we love upon each other. Now, we're family, right? So, does your family ever annoy you? 
mine does, right? And not even my extended family to my right, right? Not like my brother-in-law and sister. I'm talking like, well, I mean, I'm sure them, but they're, they're more disconnected, right? I'm talking about those ones that live right in my house, right? They live right in my house. They eat food that comes right from my table. They spend money that comes right from my pocket. They're dressed in clothes that I gave them. And some days, those little humans are so annoying, right? Like, if you're not annoyed at the little one sitting in the front row making noise with the cup all service long, you are not paying attention. Right? Huh? Sometimes, sometimes family is annoying. Sometimes family is, is, is annoying. Sometimes family is stressful. Sometimes it's all of those things. But you know what family is? It's family. And we were made into a family by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's more powerful than anything else. We have been adopted by God through the legal actions of Jesus Christ on the cross. The the, the adoption orders are written in the blood of Jesus so that you can be sons and daughters of the living God. That makes us brothers and sisters. Are we going to annoy each other? Sure. You don't want to hear this, but I'll be honest with you. You're annoying. Right? I've had interactions with most of you. And the same comes back at me, right? We, we are annoying. It is interesting to think that we, we focus on, well, that person's annoying. Yeah, have you met you? Right? Like every time I'm like, that person is so annoying, I'm like, you know what I need to get over that? A mirror. Right? Here's my point. We are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Adopted, made legally the sons and daughters of God the Father through Jesus Yes, your family, you're going to be annoying. But the loyalty that that adoption should cause should overwhelm you to the point you go, yes, they're annoying, but they're mine. They're my family, and I will love them because they care for me. And so we overlook annoyance, and we overlook offense, and we work, and we're loyal. Why? Because we're all in the same boat, bought by the same great king. And then when we fall in love with Jesus, it, calls us to love, it will cause us to love each other more and more and more and more. And so there is nothing greater than to be a part of the blood-bought family of Jesus Christ, the church. Annoying as she is, broken as she is, scarred as she is, imperfect as she is, there is nothing better, no better apologetic on earth than the family made by Jesus. And if we live like that, people are going to want to know our king. Pray with me. Jesus, let us be your family. Let us live like that. Let us be a living apologetic for the truth of who you are and what you've done. You're a great God. I care for you uh, so greatly, but I don't care for you enough, and we don't care for you enough. So I just pray that you would overwhelm us with the truth of who you are and the truth of your gospel and the power uh, of of this. And let the gospel transform us and make us into into a family. May we... May we be fiercely committed and fiercely loyal to this great family that you've you've given us. But may that loyalty be caused by the fact that you are king. May it be our mutual pursuit of you that causes us to be the apologetic that draws people. You're a great God. We love you so much. In your name, amen.